Hello, beautiful souls, and welcome or welcome back to the Thoughts That Manifest podcast. I'm Elle, and I am a mindset and manifestation coach who aims to inspire you to awaken your mind to the limitless potential that is within you. Hello, everybody. Courtney and I are back today with a very special guest, psychologist Melissa Basie, and she specializes in attachment trauma. She is here to talk to us all about attachment theory and how attachment theory and psychology plays a huge part in law of attraction and manifesting. So this should be a really exciting episode. Thank you so much, Melissa, for coming on today. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to talk about all these topics. They're awesome. Us too. I think the best way to start this off is just kind of having you let us know a little bit about yourself and your practice and how long you've been doing this and then go into a little bit of detail if you can about attachment theory in general. So like you said, my name is Melissa Basie. I'm a registered psychologist up in Canada. I'm actually in Alberta right now where there's a bunch of wildfires. (laughs) We're pretty intense here. I've been a psychologist for eight years and I took a liking to attachment theory very early on when I was in school becoming a psychologist. And from there it's just developed and that's been the majority of my practice is working with attachment, insecure attachment styles. But recently I've done a little bit of a career shift and I've gone into attachment coaching, which has allowed me to help so many more people on a way bigger scale. So that's been very exciting and that's where I'm putting a lot of my energy right now. So in terms of attachment theory, you wanted to kind of know a little bit about it or? Yeah, just kind of what it is in general, I guess, in case somebody's listening and they hear attachment theory and they've never heard of it before. So attachment theory breaks down personalities into securely attached and insecurely attached. Under the insecurely attached, there's a few more branches, but the securely attached, it's just secure attachment. And about 50% of the population is securely attached. 50% of the population is insecurely attached. Wow. Yeah. Right. Large, a large amount. Yeah. It's it's half. That's a huge amount of people. Mm -hmm. So it really applies to so, so many people. This is going to touch at least half your audience for sure. So if not more, just depending on kind of the concentration of people that are listening But yeah, so underneath the umbrella of insecure attachment, we have avoidant attachment, anxious attachment, and disorganized attachment. So disorganized attachment is just a small amount. It's about 6% out of that 50. And then the other two, anxious and avoidant, are about split evenly. And anxious and avoidant attachment styles usually pair up and they usually end up in relationships. Mm, Opposites attract. Yeah. (laughs) It's actually kind of the same underlying problem manifesting in two separate expressions. And they just attract each other. It sounds kind of like a, almost like a codependent relationship. Mm. It can be for sure. I think we were curious. So it seems like you already kind of were able to also describe to us the different types of attachment styles. So we were curious how someone could kind of look at what these attachment styles are and identify with themselves if they are one of them. Yeah, so they would have to look at how they're showing up to relationships and how those relationships are going. So if somebody is an anxious attachment style, they're going to have traits of 
neediness, feeling insecure, wondering what the other partner is doing, who they're talking to, always needing validation and affirmation around how much they're loved and appreciated. The avoidant attachment style is going to be pulling away from connection, avoiding any kind of intimacy and kind of intimate connection. Doesn't mean avoiding sex necessarily, but the intimacy that comes with sex is what they avoid. Hmm. And they're really pulling away from from yeah, that connection. So you can see how an anxious person would be really needy for them to come close and they would be really resistant to it, which is going to cause a lot of friction. Yeah, that sounds like a recipe a huge recipe for miscommunication in a totally dysfunctional relationship. Yes. Totally. (laughs) But would you say that it is possible, like, because like you said, a lot of us have these like insecure attachment styles and whatnot. If two people come together and they have like avoided and anxious that you can work through that and create a healthy relationship, even though you have those attachment styles. Yes, you can definitely work from an insecure attachment style to a secure attachment style. And that takes working with a therapist or a coach and somebody helping you see your blind spots in terms of how you're attaching to others. It's funny because I feel like I can definitely see myself and my husband in this kind of style. I mean, we have been together since I was 17. So, and I'm going to be 30. So we have kind of like grown through life together. Mm-hmm. And when I first met him, I definitely think I was anxious. I had like an anxious attachment style because of previous, you know, relationship trauma or whatever else. And then of course, childhood trauma in itself can kind of contribute to these attachment styles if I'm correct, if that's, is that right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah, it usually happens in childhood. I feel like, I feel like everything always, Lauren, I it always like you, leads wrong. you can't go wrong with that one. It's like always stored childhood. <laughs> but yeah, because I used to be someone who was very needy and I would want his attention like all the time. And if he wasn't giving me the attention, I internalized that and I took that as like, he doesn't love me, he doesn't want to be with me, or he's like trying to avoid me. But he is also more of an avoidant style from my perspective I can't like say that he definitely is or not but you know he needs his space he needs his time I'm a lot more like let's talk emotions and he's a lot more let's not talk emotions yeah but it's something we've worked through throughout the years and I have gone to therapy and things like that as well and I actually found now I don't know if this I have spiritual beliefs I guess you could say and one of my Mm -hmm. beliefs is that like we come here to learn from the people around us and we attract certain people into our lives to like teach us certain things and whatnot and so I feel as if I had attracted my husband because if I had somebody who was super needy like me I would have never had the time to myself to focus on myself, to like learn my passions and lead me to essentially the path that I'm on now. If I had somebody who was showing up constantly, you know, wanting all of the attention the same way I did, and who knows, we'd probably butt heads anyway at some point. (laughs) Yeah, there probably wouldn't be much of an attraction there if you were both anxiously attached. Yeah, that's what I figured. However, you can change your attachment style depending on who you're in a relationship with. So Mm -hmm. If you're anxious, avoidant, or disorganized and you get into a relationship with a securely attached person, you can become securely attached. Mm -hmm. Alternatively, the securely attached person can be brought down and they can be brought into insecure attachment. 
Would you recommend more so that people, I mean, I feel like there's like a layer of like first layer, which I think, sorry, Lauren's done a good job with is like, first you have to like know within yourself that like, obviously something's not right. And then the second step is obviously to seek out some type of help. Like you were saying, a coach or an actual therapist. Do you think it's beneficial for people listening if they can see these aspects in their relationship that they personally meet with a therapist or a coach or that they should do that and maybe see like a couple's therapist together so that they're not bringing down that secure partner possibly? Yeah. So I think it's really important to probably be doing both for, you know, if you're doing that individual work, that's going to be just for you. But the relationship itself is probably going to need its own therapy, in which case a couple's therapist could come in and and work on that relationship between the two people. So yeah, I would say there would be some separate therapy needed. Okay. That makes sense. That always sounds really good. Like if someone, I don't want to say who they are in my life and they've, they're working on like some family issues and like, so they're in family counseling, but then the family counselor was like, well, maybe you should also be in personal counseling and Mm. they find that really helpful. So that's kind of where my thought pattern came from for this as well. Yeah, definitely. It's so helpful to have different types of therapy for the different types of things you might be going through. I'm actually interested because you said disorganized attachment as well. What is that? What does that look like? Yes. So disorganized attachment is a mix between anxious and avoidant. They come from a highly abusive background. And so that's what causes that kind of push pull within the person themselves. Mm -hmm. This sounds like me. Yeah. no. (laughs) The push pull is kind of like, I don't know if I should trust this person and then I trust them a little bit and then I want to be with them and then I oh wait a minute maybe I don't want to like kind of confused about the emotions yeah so it's kind of I think if you didn't come from a seriously abusive childhood (laughs) then you might be one or the other anxious or avoidant depending on who you're in a relationship with so like we were talking earlier if two anxious people got together they either wouldn't be attracted to each other or one would become more avoidant So there's probably been people in your life where you have found yourself really drawn to them and then they're not so drawn to you. Mm. Oh, that actually has happened to me many, many times. Yeah. I struggle with rejection a ton. And it's like, as soon as it's the weirdest thing, like in my childhood, I was dating these guys. They would not talk to me in person ever, but they were dating me. And yet when we were in person, like it was like, they didn't even want to talk to me, but then they would text me and they would talk to me. It was so bizarre. And then like, you know, you would have somebody who would want to, they'd like tell you they want to be with you, but then they never would actually want to be with you. It was so Mm. weird that they would never be my boyfriend and they would push that off. It was like, it felt like they were trying to avoid me in a sense. It was so weird. But at the same time, they were telling me they wanted to be with me. It was was odd. Yeah. Those experiences sound like somebody who might have an anxious attachment style. And that too, I think will probably link back to not having my dad in my life growing up. Oh yeah. Feeling rejected from him. And then my, his family, because his family doesn't like talk to me because they don't talk to him. And then I just like attract people who like are emotionally unavailable. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Awesome that you have that self-awareness for those patterns. Oh yeah. It took, it took a lot of therapy to get there for sure, but it's great because my dad and I have a great relationship now. Like I was able to let go of a lot of resentment from the past and work Mm. through that. So, and I think that has actually helped 
my relationship with my husband as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The healing kind of trickles into all the different areas of your life once you start it. Mm -hmm. So true. Definitely. And then she's kind of sparked other people like me. I I honestly do feel like it's funny because Courtney and I, we actually grew up together Mm -hmm. um, in the same neighborhood. So Mm -hmm. she was like my neighborhood bestie. And so we have been like with each other forever now. And we have been there through some of like the most challenging times in each other's lives. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting. I feel like how, you know, people come into your life for a reason or a season or a lesson or a blessing. That's like how I like to look at it. But you know, what's interesting, Lauren, what would be us figuring out our attachment styles to each other would be interesting. Yeah, I wonder. I feel like they're secure. I feel like, yeah, yeah. I feel like now, now, now for now sure. In the beginning, I think there was a little bit of anxious. Oh, I had such bad anxious attachment. <laughs> I had a lot of friendship, a lot of friendship rejection over the, like growing up as a kid where like mm. I was teased and taunted, very similar to Lauren. And then like people wanted to be my friend when I was like home and I'm going to reveal how old I am. And you could like instant message someone and and then texting became a thing after I was in high school. But before that, it was just like, I would go to school and they'd be like, I don't like you and I don't want to talk to you. And they'd be like, I'm so confused. Like we talked on the phone last night and we were friends. Like, I don't get this. So I think that that caused a lot of problems early on in Lauren and I's friendship because I I was like, what do you mean you have other friends? What do you mean you're going to hang out with other people without me? <laughs> you can't do that. Yeah, that was that was a little difficult to navigate at times because I, I was like, you know, wanting to reassure you that no, like you're my really good friend. Like, don't worry, I'm still gonna be friends with you. But yeah, and I would say like since you've kind of started my healing journey a few years ago, I would say probably bef- like slightly before COVID, I was just like, okay, well, she's my friend. She can have other friends. It's fine. I'm not worried about it. We're always going to be there for each other. So if she wants to go do something else with someone else, I'm not going to take it personal anymore. That's awesome. We've come to a place where we're very secure in our friendship now. And even through the distance, because I live over in Massachusetts and she lives in Texas. So yeah, now she's moved away from me, which is also something else I really feel like contributed to a lot of my attachment styles is the fact that I would grow really close to a friend and they would all move away. Mm. Does that contribute at all? Yeah. And I really like how you guys are talking about attachment styles outside of just the romantic partner connection, because we have our attachment style can impact the way that we manifest in different things, such as money or career or you know really like how we interact with our colleagues our friends attachment styles how we interact with ourselves that's so so you could have like you were saying you can have a certain attachment style to one person but could be completely different to the next yeah exactly That's, that's so interesting because now I think about when I used to work for other people and when I used to have bosses I feel like I was very avoidant I feel like I didn't ever want to go to them if I needed to like ask for help or I was afraid to ask for help from them I was afraid to like open up to them about something that I maybe needed in the job or whatever else and I was like I need to avoid my boss at all costs I don't want to deal with them like afraid mm-hmm. and maybe that comes back to and this is just me thinking in my mind but maybe that goes back to the fact that my dad was a yeller and really aggressive growing up and um anytime I would you know hurt myself he'd yell at me or anytime I needed help he would yell at me like that kind of energy maybe created me seeing authority figures as I'm afraid of them almost. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that makes a lot of sense. 
Yeah, that that can definitely happen. Oh my gosh, the smoke is like killing my voice. So oh, no. sorry. Oh, you're no, okay. No, no, that I'm praying for Canada. I had no idea that was with the wildfires yeah. right now. Yeah, the Alberta wildfires. That's yeah, so scary. Yeah. <laughs> But anyway, it's very scary. I can only yeah. imagine. I was actually curious too. It sounds like you can have disorganized attachments, but it seems like the disorganized comes with, like you said, like pretty severe abuse in the home. So I don't know if you've had a chance to listen to some of our other episodes where I got kind of in detail of some of my childhood trauma. Didn't hear that. My, no. uh, my house had a lot of physical abuse, emotional neglect. And also there was some sexual abuse in the home as well. So I feel like when you were talking about disorganized, I could see different stages of my life or just like even like a six month span where I would go back and forth between the two. Mm, Interesting. (laughs) Yeah. Attachment styles, they can be very fluid and very flexible, easily changed with kind of the right work. But yeah, it may, it would make sense with that level of abuse that you would come up with a disorganized attachment style. Is that what you see play out in your relationship? I don't know. I feel like I don't recognize any of them. Like, I think I would have to be more observant, if that makes hmm. sense. Almost mm-hmm. like I haven't been, a, been as present with looking for what our attachment style is. Yeah. I do think the anxious attachment probably probably in the beginning of my relationship with my partner because we've been together almost 10 years Mm -hmm. and he was more avoidant because I was needing more reassurance and Mm -hmm. he was kind of like well I don't know if I want to be at first he was like I'm all in and then he was like met my family and kind of learned what had happened in my life and was like very drawn back by that and was like Mm -hmm. I don't think I want to deal with any of this That would hurt me very yeah. painful. I was in therapy, the I say this, the first time I went to college because I have a, a biology degree and then a nursing degree. And when I got my biology degree, I had to go to therapy and really talk out being okay with basically hating my own mom. Mm. And that was tough. And letting go of the expectations I had on myself career-wise or school-wise and mm-hmm. why they were so important when no one else was pushing for that. Like what I identified as success and why that was successful. So I found that really helpful. More recently, I've decided that I need, I need to go back to therapy. I'm working through a lot of emotional relationship with food and abuse with that because I have a coach right now and she's sort of like a macro holistic coach and she's really wonderful and I always cry when I meet with her but she said yeah like therapy is going to be another way that we can kind of help this journey so I'm actively looking for another therapist now. Interesting so what is it around the food if I could ask? So there's a little bit of discussion in a different podcast, but I'll just kind of give you an overview too. So sorry if I repeat myself. Basically, when my mom and my father got divorced, my mom got with someone else. They never officially became our step-parent, but they basically were. That person came from a very, very abusive home. And so what had happened, I was like five or six and we were out at a friend's and they made a plate of food that was way too large for me. Mm -hmm. And being a kid, you know, I'm like, mommy, I'm done. I'm full. I don't want to eat anymore. And he was just like, no, you're going to eat everything that they gave you. And I'm like, but my tummy like hurts. I can't eat anymore. 
my mom didn't do anything. She just mm-hmm. allowed that situation to continue of you need to eat everything. And I did. And then I proceeded to get sick on the way home in the car. Aww. And I had to say, see, mommy, I told you I was full. Yeah. And then that continued the, you know, this is what you have on your plate. You need to clear it all through probably until middle school. And then it became mm. like I was, I would take my dinner and eat it in my room by myself. Yeah. Because I didn't want to deal with it. And then I just recently had, like I said, I met with my coach and we were talking about how there's also like a level of shame I have around eating and food because at a certain point we moved in with my grandmother to take care of her Mm. and the the food abuse of like finish everything was still there, but my grandmother would try to step in, but she never directly addressed the abuser. She Mm -hmm. would send him away and be like, oh, I'll make sure she finishes it. And then she would like eat a little herself or throw a little away. So she was hiding that. So that created some type of connection of shame in my head with food as well. So. Wow. That's a lot of trauma that you have around food. Just eating. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm just like, this is a basic thing. But we also did a recent episode with my sister. And one of the beautiful things about my sister now being a mom is her kids. She lets them pick what they want to eat. They eat as much or as little as they want. She just kind of gives them a lot more autonomy over it because we experience that together. And they have a very healthy relationship with eating and food. So it's exciting to see the cycle be broken with those kids. Yeah, that's awesome. And I was actually interested in hearing your opinion on this. When it comes to like children, is it more beneficial to allow them to have a choice rather than being like, I am making this decision for you. You're going to eat this or you're going to not eat it all tonight. Oh, I think it's it's so much more beneficial to help kids be able to listen to their body. Mm, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, and that's something I definitely wish that I had gotten a lot more to because similar to Courtney, I feel like there was also some similar kind of energy around food in my household, but like in a different way. So for me and my brother, we were very picky eaters, extremely mm-hmm. picky. And so and my brother has trauma around food as well because of my dad forcing him to eat and like with the fork and like shoving it and then him getting sick and throwing up so now my brother has this huge phobia of throwing up you know it's interesting so do I yeah I I would rather have a stomach ache than get sick yeah 100% and then with me whenever I wasn't eating one thing I used to hear a lot as a kid is oh well you don't want to end up in the hospital with like needles in your arm and them feeding you with a feeding tube like that was like a go-to thing to fear me into eating wow so, and and I just think of like when I'm able and lucky and blessed to finally have kids of my own of how I would show up differently. Like Courtney was saying how her sister would show up differently and like maybe giving my children options and being like, okay, well, what do you want to eat tonight? Are you, do you want this or do you want this? Instead of being like, you're going to eat this and that's it. Right. Also, I think the amount, letting them determine, like listening to your body, them being like, I'm starving, I need a snack. And you being like, well, dinner's not till blah, blah, blah. Maybe just, you know, letting them be in tune with like, okay, I'm hungry, so it's time to eat. I'm not hungry, I'm not going to eat. That creates that healthy relationship of like their hunger hormone and their reaction. Yeah, 
Agreed. And I don't think it's important to always give kids the option of what they want to eat because then it kind of makes mom into a shorter cook who, you know, <laughs> that. <laughs> yeah. And that can be very frustrating <laughs> for moms. They can make what they want to make and they can let their kid decide how much they want to eat. And they can say like, this is what's on the menu today. And you can eat as much or as little <laughs> as your body tells you it should. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever heard of intuitive eating? Yes, I'm a certified intuitive eating counselor. Oh, wow. Yeah. That. Mm. I mean, I know you kind of came on here to talk about attachment theory and whatnot, but would no, you be open to sharing just thoughts on intuitive eating and what it is? Yeah. So intuitive eating basically is just listening to your hunger and fullness cues and really getting in tune with what satiation feels like. So when you are that comfortable amount of full and really respecting that, really respecting how your body feels around food. and taking in the food that you are craving, passing on the food that you aren't necessarily wanting. There are no no food rules with intuitive eating, like nothing around carbs or macros or any anything like that. Like it's you eat what your internal body is telling you to eat, not what the external world is telling you to eat. I love that. That's pretty interesting. I'm trying to do like a combination right now with my macro coach of like making sure I'm hitting like a certain protein goal, but incorporating all the things that I want want to eat, which actually sounds really tricky, but it's actually not, thank God, because of the internet, there's so many resources, but just getting started on that journey is hard. Yeah. It's food is, it's interesting how food should be such a primal human instinct and we've managed to even mess that up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I always talk to my patients about there being kind of four main things that live in the middle of our brain. And that's the very first part of the brain that was evolved. And then from the center of our brain came the midbrain and then the forebrain. But in the center of that brain, we have eating, sleeping, going to the bathroom and having sex. And these are the four things. Yeah, that (laughs) when those get out of whack, we really need to pay attention and get them back in harmony, because those are really the four basic survival needs for our species. I'm also curious, like just thinking of my own experience as well too. Like once I hit middle school and high school, I was never, not that my mom needed to, but it would have just been nice because as I'm learning responsibility of an adult and everything, and I was contributing to like household chores and everything, but she never asked me like what I wanted. Like when she was planning what we were going to eat for the week, she would never ask like what I wanted to eat. So Mm -hmm. also there were a lot of times where she made like meats that I zero desire to eat like steak. I know I'm crazy. So I would just eat like a plate of vegetables for dinner. And so I I know it's slightly different, but when I'm meal prepping with my husband, we sit down and I'm like, well, what do you feel like you want to eat this week? Do you want to eat lighter stuff like some salads? Do you want to mix in some heavy meats like some short ribs? How do you want to do this week? And we kind of figure out together like, okay, we'll mix and match. And then it's all in the fridge. So as you feel you want to have something heavy, it's there. If you want to have a little something light, it's there. But now I'm thinking about it and I'm like, I feel kind of offended that no one ever asked me what I wanted. Yeah, that would have been helpful in your development around food for sure. It's so interesting to see how that plays out too, because I I just adore Courtney for loving to cook. 
right? Oh, I love cooking. But for me, I can't stand cooking. It's the last thing I want to do. And I kind of don't really prioritize my, I guess you can say like nutrition and things like that, because I hate cooking so much. And I don't know if it's from the environment I grew up in, you know, my mom, she worked all the time and she was a single mom. And then whenever I would ask like, what's for dinner, it would be, okay, well, you can have a bowl of cereal. You can have Chef Boyardee or, you know, or I can like make you a pancake. And so it's like like, cheese, like frozen cheeseburgers. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah. Do you think that like busy? Exactly. She was very busy. So like, I don't like, you know, I can like look back and see how. And then in high school, affected everything and then in high school we would just go out to eat a lot applebee's so much we went out to eat a lot like i got very overweight from that i'm just like do you think like living in an environment like that contributes to my lack and desire of wanting to cook for myself or i don't know or is that just yeah, something that I was just born with? It's hard to say. My own journey with cooking, I used to love cooking and now I just can't stand it. So, so you, it's, there's like moments, there's ebbs and flows. Like, yeah, I think, well, because I'm in a busy period of my life of doing career stuff. So homemaking so stuff. Yeah, it's not really where my priority is, but I'm sure down the road it will become a priority again. That makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. It makes a lot of sense because I think like when you're grounded in your work, that's mm-hmm. like your main focus and you're grounded in that and yeah. that's where you find that sense of presence. Whereas like cooking can also be, I think like when everything else is not grounding you or making you feel present, it's something that can slow you down and do yeah. that. But if you're already getting that from a different aspect of your life, then it makes sense that you don't need that anymore. Mm, I like that. That's really wise. Yeah. yeah. I like that too. But, and then I think also though, when it comes to focusing so heavily on career, I'm very much guilty of, you know, telling myself, oh, I don't have time to cook. I don't have time to prioritize taking care of myself because I'm focusing on my business and you can very easily lose yourself in that. Yeah. Mm. Girlfriend, and- you have an Instapot. You have time to cook. You put everything. I know. I know. I do. I do. It's excuses. I tell myself. Yeah, it is just so easy to like lose sight of yourself when you're working on building a career. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Just priorities, right? Like you said. Shift us a little bit. I know we've been talking about food. I did look, obviously we, we kind of creep, creep as the kids call it. Um, (laughs) I was checking out your Instagram and I saw how you were discussing attachment theory with repetition compulsion and then I saw how you you were talking slightly about like how those things relate and how it can affect manifesting so I kind of mm-hmm. wanted to touch on all of that stuff I know sure. specific questions but I'm just kind of give you what I saw and then let you run with it <laughs> <laughs> okay so the way I incorporate it manifesting with attachment is the way we attach to things is going to show how we are manifesting. So if we can get our attachment style figured out and we can become more securely attached to the different areas of our life, then manifesting is going to be no problem. But if we have an anxious attachment style, let's say, we're going to have self-worth issues. We're going to have worthiness issues. And when you have self-worth or worthiness issues and you're trying to manifest something, if you don't believe you're worthy of it, you're not going to get it. So or say an avoidant attachment style, avoidant attachment might be detached, kind of numbed out, 
from the manifesting process. But we know with manifesting, you need to really feel it real. You need to use your feelings. Like feeling is the secret, as Neville Goddard says. And with an avoidant attachment style, connecting to the feeling might be a little bit harder. So that's how I see attachment styles and manifesting kind of playing off each other. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And then in terms of repetition compulsion, until we start to identify, well, because oftentimes in the manifesting community, people are wanting to manifest an SP, so a specific person. And when they are looking to manifest a specific person, I find with patients, they have issues with picking the same type of person over and over and over again, which is called repetition compulsion, where we feel compelled to repeat the patterns of the past, the the hurts and traumas of the past, so that hopefully this time we can make it better. But that's not how that works. We have to instead see why we're doing what we're doing, stop behaving out of that repetition compulsion, come back to our inner knowings and our secure attachment style, And from that secure base, manifesting becomes so much easier. That makes a lot of sense. Do you have tips for someone who would want to break the repeating cycle? Like how does one break free from that repetition? The first thing that someone needs to do is really see it. And a lot of people don't see it. They don't know that they're in repetition compulsion. I was just going to say, I know someone in my life who has anxious attachment style and is always in repetition compulsion, attracts the wrong partner, or the partner is fine, and the relationship is great, and then four to six months goes by, and they're calling me, and they're like, they don't want to spend time with me. They're disappearing. They're secretly texting someone on their phone. I know that they're cheating. They're meeting up with other women, blah, blah, blah. And then it's like that itself, the that anxious attachment and thinking Mm -hmm. those things becomes the manifestation of the relationship. Mm -hmm. And then that actually happens. And then the relationship ends and it's repeated for years. Yes. And I actually have a really difficult time because there's someone I really admire and do like, Mm -hmm. but I don't know how to be like these things require therapy and if you want them to change you need to go to therapy because they don't even recognize that it's a problem or that it has to do with mental health at all yeah and so they need to be in that state of of wanting to seek it out themselves as a therapist that's something I would never do is counsel somebody who didn't want to be counseled so sometimes people can be like court ordered to go to counseling Mm. I would never perform that that would be so pointless in Mm -hmm. my opinion but you have to be willing to do the work and And if you don't want to go to therapy, then you're most likely not willing to do the work. Yeah. How do you, because I've heard people though saying like you can plant seeds. So do you feel like you could plant seeds with someone that you see these things like cyclically happening in their life? And it honestly, it does hurt them. And, and you as someone in their life, it, and you feel for them. I have a lot of compassion, but obviously I can't change that for them. But is there any way that I could like plant seeds that would help them? I mean, you could tell them about repetition compulsion. <laughs> That's and true. Just tell them this is an actual thing. Like this has a definition. Look at this. Right. Yeah. So that would be See one See if something way. clicks in them and they're like, oh, maybe I do that. Mm-hmm. Okay. I actually find that similar to Courtney, I can very much attract people into my life that are in toxic 
repeating patterns and they're continuously telling me the same stories every time and every time and every time. But I actually find that it's extremely draining for me to try to be the one to like plant the seeds and get them to make a change. When in reality, it's like sometimes we have to just let go and, you know, we can't change people. We can't help people make things they don't want to notice. And in my past, like when I've tried to make people notice things that they need to change, it's always ended with them not wanting to talk to me anymore. So mm-hmm. I, I think that can be also um, very draining. I, I think agree. it's because when you like force a mirror to someone and their flaws, it's like it's a trigger. Or even, yeah, it's a trigger for them. And I think when you're like, when you're showing someone that mirror of like things that they need to work on, but they didn't recognize it themselves, it also, it becomes like a defensive mechanism where they're like, that's not what's wrong with me. I can't believe how dare you suggest that it's, it's similar to Lauren and I were having a conversation about language changing when you have a confrontation which we're going to talk about later on in more detail on a different episode but changing you to I when you confront Mm. someone like I feel this way Mm. instead of you do this and it bothers you make me feel this way yeah so changing (laughs) that that language so that you can have a more productive conversation and less of like a dysfunctional argument that was like the yes. first thing I learned in therapy. Yeah, that is really, really helpful for sure. I would agree. And I would probably look to at your own desire to have this person change and look at what it is inside of you that gets uncomfortable around their decisions. That makes a lot of sense too, right? Yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense. Realizing like, why is it affecting me so much that they're not making these changes? Why do I care so much? Right. And, Lauren. Yeah. Lauren's talked about it a lot because you have that fixer like you want to fix everything because of childhood trauma I think Mm. mine would be really specific because this person spends time around my husband and I as like a third wheel and talks about how lucky we are and how they still have hope for love and how that's what they want and you know how everything is easier because there's two of us to do it together and how they admire our relationship but and then it just kind of that in itself makes me appreciate my relationship but it also makes me sad that like they can see that and they say they want it but they they can't get past themselves to get it well so the one tip that you had there was you first have to become aware of it and then what happens once you become aware of it and so what was the question again how do you kind of break the cycles of the right of the cycles. Yeah. So that's going to be different, like depending on how the person is going to move forward, their awareness is going to be the biggest part of it. And then depending on what exactly they need to break the cycle of is going to lay out the next steps for how they individually break their cycles. Do you have like a more specific example? Okay, here's a here's a good one. Let's say, and this doesn't really have to do with relationships, I guess, but let's say you have a career that you're in that you really cannot stand and you want to get out of it. But instead of going on to like a completely new path that would let you up, you're like, well, I only have these certain skills. So I'm going to go into something that is the same as the career that I was already in, but like it's a different environment. So maybe this time it will be different. But then you get there and it's the same toxic energy in the career that you have already chosen in the past. And you keep repeating like you're stuck in this loop. Like for me for a while, it was serving. I was stuck in like the serving loop where I would Mm -hmm. go from like one restaurant to the next, expecting that I would have a better 
environment or whatever else. It took me a while to break free from that. But like, let's say somebody is stuck on this like career loop of feeling mm-hmm. like they can't break free from toxic work cycles. Yeah. So I would probably want to look at like, where did they learn about career paths, career trajectory? How do they feel about themselves? How worthy do they feel? How purpose, like how, how aware are they of their own purpose and why they're here on earth? So, so many directions you could go with that. It would require kind of a lot of questions, but it, the first thing it would require is for someone to say like, Hey, I need help. This isn't working for me anymore. And from there, then we can get in and do some really juicy work together. Yeah. Yeah. Love that. Well, yeah. this has been such a great combo. I'm yes. very much so. on. Thank you having for having me. Yes, of course. Anytime. And before we head out, where can everybody connect with you? Where can they learn more about what you offer? Things like that. Yeah. So they can just go to attachmentrecovery.com and get in touch with me that way. They can, once you go to attachmentrecovery.com, you can download a free guide on attachment trauma. And then you have an option of being able to book a call with me to have a chat with me about your specific situation and to find out if my course called Attach- the Attachment Recovery Program would be a right fit for them. But the attachment recovery program really isn't just for people who are trying to manifest an SP. The attachment recovery program is for people who want to manifest healthy attachment with money, with food, with with relationships, colleagues, career, anything. So it's really just healing your attachment style to have you showing up in the world as a securely attached person, being able to manifest whatever you want. Love that. Thank you again. This was awesome. Definitely. Like we could do a part two if you guys have more topics and questions. (laughs) Yeah, I would love that. That'd be so much fun. You guys are awesome. Thank you so (laughs) much. You're welcome. Everybody listening, we will see you next time.